Hi, and welcome to episode four of Divided by Design, a podcast series on systemic racism. My name is Mitch Landrew, and I am the founder and president of E Pluribus Unum. E Pluribus Unum is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization whose mission is to build a more just, equitable, and inclusive South, uprooting the barriers that have long divided the region by race and class. Today, we're diving deeper on the topic of health equity. We'll delve into the historic systems of racial inequity created in the American healthcare industry since the founding of this country. We'll also examine the programs and racist policies created over the last century, contributing to the poor health and living conditions of many people of color and working poor in the United States. At the same time, these systems of institutionalized racism have greatly benefited the healthcare options for white Americans and provided economic prosperity for hospitals, HMO, and medical schools across the country. We will also discuss how racial inequity in the healthcare system has impacted people of color today, particularly in the face of one of the most deadly health pandemics in the 21st century. COVID is on a global path of destruction with the U.S. clearly not doing well. People of color have borne the disproportionate impact of this public health and economic crisis, with black Americans facing the largest burden in the South. According to data from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, COVID-19 is affecting the black population at exceptionally high rates. At one point, majority black counties had infection rates three times the rate of majority white counties. This is due to disparities that are currently baked into the healthcare delivery system and public health. Let's begin by asking the question, how long has this been going on? We're talking to advocates, historians, and experts. We hope to walk you through how we got here and how we can move forward towards healing and reconciliation. Dr. Takesha Davis, the CEO of New Orleans East Hospital, explains the origins of racism in the healthcare industry and how this has impacted people of color for centuries. Yeah, I think it's uh, extremely important for us to uh, recognize that there's a legacy of racism um, in health and healthcare, uh, and it dates back uh, to the 1800s. Uh, that sometimes uh, we don't like to call out um, vividly in the way that we should, and how that impacts not just um, the care that we give, uh, but the medical education um, that is um, used to train. Uh, our healthcare professionals and how that um, biases them uh, to the patients that they're taking care of and leads to uh, the disproportionate impact of disease and disease processes in our community. Dr. Jeremy Green, who serves as the director of the Institute of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins Medical School, believes that racism is deeply rooted in the history of medicine. I think that when you look back at the history of American medicine, it's really impossible to understand what medicine and public health are without understanding that race is so tightly tied up in this. And also vice versa, that the fields of American medicine and public health as professional scientific clinical fields have also played a large role in making race and racism what it has been over the course of our nation's history and our current lived experience. Um, and. I think part of the problem of trying to narrate a history of key events in the history of race and racism in American health and medicine is that it has so, it's, it's a line that so thoroughly saturates all of the development of the field up to the present that um, 
that drawing the lines between these events, I think, becomes really crucial. Understanding that there is a role of medicine in appraising the worth and soundness and economic value of different bodies of Black Americans. After the failed promises of Reconstruction, in which the 40 acres and a mule was not provided, the different health outcomes of newly emancipated African Americans compared to their white counterparts was then pointed at by members of an exclusively white, for the most part, medical profession as evidence of a hierarchy of biologicized difference. Is we see the closure of a number of schools that existed at the time for African-American trainings, uh, for the produced African-American MDs, just like we see the closure of a number of schools that produce women physicians, a number of women's medical schools. And so there's ways in which this progressive era is a great contraction. Um, it's the era of Jim Crow, and it's an era of reduction of access, not just for Black Americans seeking formal health care through the healthcare system, but also reduction of access for Black Americans seeking to become professionals in the fields of medicine and public health as well. Practicing physician and respected medical journalist Dr. Corey Abair recalls how racism in medicine was still prominent in the 1960s. Before you get there, I'm going to say in 1960, uh, the dean of Tulane's medical school still wrote papers to say that black people were a different species of human being. That was 1960. Dr. Kamara Jones, a physician and senior fellow at Morehouse College, challenges the racial stereotypes perpetuated by white members of the medical community. This whole notion of biological determinism, but race is not biology. We have mapped the human genome. There is no basis in the human genome for racial subspeciation. So then when we try to figure out why do we see such marked differences in terms of health outcomes by race? Well, you, people say, oh, well, maybe race is a proxy for social class, but it's a rough proxy for social class, but by no means, I mean, that is black folks, for example, are overrepresented in poverty, but not all black people are poor. The, the plurality of poor people are white in this country. It's a rough con uh, relationship. And the only reason that there's any relationship at all is because of structural racism. Then people say, oh, well, maybe it's culture. Well, there's not one black white culture or white culture or Asian culture or Hispanic culture. And within each so-called race, there are many, many different dietary habits or whatever. You could be called black, been growing up in the rural, you know, the rural south, the urban north, just come over from Haiti, come over from Ethiopia. Actually, you could be called black coming over from Australia. But if we are honest, we need to ask why. And then we have to broaden our gaze, not just to the social determinants of health, like poverty and adverse neighborhood conditions, but to systems of power that can, that can create the range of contexts that we see and then differentially distribute different populations into different contexts. And that's when we start talking about racism and sexism and heterosexism and colonialism, economic systems like capitalism and the like. Dr. Green exposes the insidious nature of racism thriving at all levels of America's healthcare system. And there's oftentimes an intermediate step, whether it's the redlining map or whether it's the way that we tie healthcare benefits to employment and then offer certain kinds of jobs only to certain kinds of people. But these structures are played out at a municipal, state, and national level, and they produce an enduring difference in who actually gets access to healthcare. Those areas of cities in America through the Great Migration that become coded as black 
also become coded for divestment from uh, federal and from state and oftentimes even municipal forms of support for uh, materials that are supposed to be part of the Commonwealth, part of actually benefiting everybody, whether it's public schools, public swimming pools, public parks, um, public libraries, uh, a relative divestment. This leads us in, in the post-war years, um, into ways in which there's a similar form of redlining that happens in terms of access to health care. So the, the, the insurance industry is at first explicitly racially segregated. And then as it begins to, as as mainstream insurance companies begin to willingly or by force um, uh, insure African-Americans, offer health insurance and life insurance to African-Americans, they charge higher premiums for, for African-Americans as well. And so by the mid 20th century, as the American way of thinking about healthcare explicitly ties health insurance to employment as a benefit, differential racial accessibility to different kinds of jobs which did or did not provide these benefits also immediately ties access to healthcare to race. Dr. Takesha Davis believes the racial inequities presently seen in American healthcare are rooted in racism. Racism is a social construct, and the differences that we see, these health inequities, are not biologically or genetically um, rooted. It's rooted in racism. And so we have to be, as providers, willing to say what we have been taught has to be untaught. Right, medical schools and medical education have been led by racist white men since the beginning of time. It wasn't until the 1960s that the American Association of Medical Colleges would even acknowledge that minorities needed to be equally admitted to medical schools. Dr. Tony Esselin, a physician and medical director at City Block Health in New York, agrees that many students in medical school are subjected to the racist stereotyping and misinformation about health issues affecting people of color. While going through my pediatric rotation, the things that I was being taught was based on flawed science and actually racist ideals. Um, the protocols and residency that we had to call social work on a mother who didn't have prenatal care, again, deeply, deeply steeped in racism and, and racist um, ideology. The fact that when we're taking exams, the question stems are deeply stereotyped and that we're, we're looking at an exam, uh, exam question. I can give you an example. 12-year-old African-American male with obesity and the, the end of the story is to treat diabetes as opposed to just 12-year-olds with obesity. Dr. Esselin recalls how she and other medical students of color were taught about major black health issues, but were not taught about how these issues occur. On top of that, you have providers like myself who were actually trained that health disparities, there's no why behind it, right? They're just, we're trained to memorize these things. We're trained to memorize that black people have hypertension. We don't have a conversation about Black people have hypertension because of chronic stress and food deserts. That doesn't come into the conversation. Dr. Kamara Jones believes that part of the disparities in healthcare are due to the varying conditions in the lifestyles afforded to white people over people of color. Health is not created within the health sector is number one, right? Like there are, there are differences in quality of care. There are even differences in access to care. But the biggest differences causing differences in health outcomes are the differences in the conditions of our lives. 
And there are many people who do not know that there even are differences in the conditions of our lives across town or across the tracks by race because they were born inside the restaurant and have never ventured out. Dr. Jeremy Green recalls how the war on drugs of the 1980s was pivotal in painting a negative perception of black and brown communities nationwide. And you can trace that into the story that Dr. Esselin was talking about, about how we all learned in the 80s and 90s to think about crack babies and to think about the crack epidemic as an objective reality of the danger of black and brown spaces in American cities, rather than the result of a set of federal policies, including a tough on crime war on drugs, which then helped to produce further divestment from the public health priorities of the time. Now listen to professor of health law, policy, and management at the Morehouse College School of Medicine, Daniel Dawes, explain how political determinants also play a part in the erosion of healthcare services available to black and brown communities nationwide. How did this happen to begin with, right? So we know that African-Americans, Native Americans, other groups, you know, they still contend with neighborhoods that are largely devoid of health-sustaining and health-protective resources, and they're still contending with these social determinants. Well, if we want to move beyond merely nibbling around the edges of the problem of health inequities, we have to connect the social determinants of health to their political roots. Because that highway that runs right through the middle of the Black community, or those bus depots that were overwhelmingly located in these communities, wasn't by chance. It's really not an organic outcome. They were deliberate, and they all have a political underpinning to them. So the political determinants of health really are the main instigators of many of these, right? Of course, undergirded by racism, as we've been talking about early on. And when you look at the public health research, is it any wonder that, you know, we see higher rates of asthma within these black and brown communities? They are breathing in the most polluted air. Dr. Kamara Jones shares how institutional racism not only contributes to the decimation of black communities, but also further enriches white communities in the process. This system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on so-called race, based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race, this racism has three impacts. It unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities. It unfairly advantages other individuals and communities. And it saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. In light of COVID, how do our medical experts view the state of healthcare in America today for Black Americans? And what are the long-term solutions to close these inequities? In terms of COVID-19, so when people think, oh my God, what's happening with COVID-19? Well, this is just another story about how racism and how it has structured our environments and actually also differentially valued us, how it is showing up as a health thing. It's just that the Black and Brown bodies and indigenous bodies were piling up so fast that people were startled at first. But do you notice that we're not talking about those racial, race-associated differences in COVID-19 anymore? It's, they've already been normalized. They've already been normalized as part of, oh, that's just an expected racial disparity. Racism is a root cause of all of the race-associated differences that we see in health outcomes in this country and in educational outcomes and in housing outcomes and all of that. 
Dr. Michelle Morse, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, believes that a lack of trust in the healthcare industry is the reason why many Black Americans may not want to take a vaccine. When we talk about Black people, for example, you know, not wanting to get the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, um, it's often done in an accusatory way, in a way that is stigmatizing. And in fact, this is a completely rational response. Research uh, has shown, uh, believe it or not, that if we were to eliminate the racial wealth gap, that COVID-19 transmission would decrease by between 30 and 68%. And so that's pretty much as good as a vaccine, right? Um, and so I think that more research of that ilk needs to be done. Uh, it's not to say the vaccine's not important. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I am trying to say there is so much more than the vaccine as well. And eliminating the racial wealth gap would be a great place to start in terms of protecting communities against COVID. Dr. Michelle Morse has some concern about how the vaccines for COVID-19 will be distributed within minority communities. Clear advice to communities about what to do around this vaccine. But one of my biggest concerns is the global distribution inequities that are going to impact the African diaspora in ways that I'm very nervous about. Daniel Dawes expressed his concern about the lack of involvement of Black doctors in the major clinical trials. You look at a lot of these uh, trials, these um, uh, vaccine trials, they, they've waited to the last minute to bring in Black physicians and scientists, and they want you to push to enroll more African-Americans in these uh, vaccine trials. So, you know, that's always a, a stunt, I think, that is pulled in many cases throughout our history where they bring them on at the last minute. And then a lot of African-Americans, if you look, look at Tuskegee, many African-American physicians and, and, and uh, scientists were used, right, unbeknownst to them, by uh, governmental interests. Dr. Takesha Davis believes that now is the time for serious changes in the American healthcare industry. It takes more than just cultural competence training and implicit bias training and people checking the box. We have to say that we need to embed in our institutions always a lens of equity in all of our policies, right? As Dr. Moore said, when you start talking about these issues in healthcare systems that are run by the majority, they feel threatened. They don't think that these are issues that they have. They don't think that they're racist or that they're participating in a racist system. So you have to start with the data because the data is undeniable. Dr. Michelle Morse believes that in order to move racial equity forward in healthcare, hospital leaders need to acknowledge the long history of racism in their industry. It begins with a real acknowledgement and it's not a press release, right? It is actually, you know, being clear as hospital leaders, clinic leaders, health system leaders um, of, of saying not just in a press release, but in every way that we interact with the communities that we serve, you know, we're starting from a point where we are acknowledging this history, um, this ne the, the negatives of the history between communities of color and, you know, hospitals and clinics and, me and organized medicine. Dr. Takesha Davis believes that in order to accomplish real change in the healthcare industry, many of us current leaders need to step down. I'm not often um, a person who says you need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we need to get rid of some of these people, right? If we know that what we have been producing is getting worse, 
with respect to diversity within medical education. We need to change the decision makers. We need to change those who are leading these institutions because even faced with the data, they are not willing to make the necessary steps. So there has to be a way more vocal advocacy for us in the same way we see the Black Lives Matter advocating uh, for those law enforcement officers who we know are not doing what they're supposed to do. We have to do the same thing in medical schools. Thank you for listening to this episode on health equity. The words of our medical experts signal the need for a major transformation in health policy if we are to deliver truly equitable health care. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown that it does not respect geographic borders, political ideologies, age, or gender. Yet for the United States, the coronavirus has exposed a widespread and long-existing pandemic of poverty and discrimination of Black Americans that is too readily ignored or accepted in our communities. We are made sick today because of the coronavirus, but the health and wellness of our communities have been declining for years as the result of deep pre-existing racial and socioeconomic inequities created by actions at the federal, state, and local government level, as well as in the private sector. There is great hope that America's current health crisis will lead to long-term changes, yet only time will tell. On the next episode, we look at the topic of housing and segregation on the Divided by Design podcast series presented by E. Pluribus Unum. I'm Mitch Landrew. Thanks for listening. For more information on this podcast series or how to get involved in our efforts to advance equity in the South, go to www.unumfund.org. Follow us at Unum Fund on social media and email us at podcast at unumfund.org.